You are listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. Hello and welcome to Dirt Work. This is your host, Adam Morrissey. Today we'll be discussing cross-section of education and real estate and here an academic viewpoint on current trends impacting the industry. Our guest today is Joseph Cahoon, who is the director of the Folsom Institute for Real Estate at SMU. In his role, he's responsible for leading the Institute's initiatives in academic research and outreach to the real estate industry. Prior to his role at SMU, Joseph was the director of the real estate program at UT Austin and held several roles at reputable development firms across the state of Texas. How's it going today, Joseph? Welcome. Great. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we spoke last, uh, it had been a crazy couple weeks for, for your team transitioning to online learning. You know, SMU, I think the total student body is over 10,000 students. Can you talk a little bit about that transition and if there was anything that surprised you? Absolutely. The transition, like for all of us, had to happen literally almost overnight. And and for many of us, I, I we have been thinking about online education. In SMU in particular, we had recently launched an online MBA. But for most of us, myself included, I was a skeptic about online education. I felt that the level of, uh, or the ability to interact was very limited. Um, and I thought that te- the technology, I was just really concerned about it. Well, I have to say I, I was proven wrong. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that it was exactly a smooth transition for either students or for uh, their professors, but I think that we learned some really incredible things. Um, primarily, I think, and this would be the same, I think, for many people they are saying today, it brought about change that probably would have taken years, happened in a matter of a month. And primarily when I mean this from an educational standpoint, there's been discussion about flipping the classroom. That's kind of been the big buzzword, right? Instead of lecturing in a classroom and sending you off to go do homework, uh, and do readings outside of class, well, why not flip the classroom and create asynchronous material? Meaning I'm going to give you a lecture. You're going to watch it. You're going to interact with that in an online asynchronous manner, but then you're going to come to the classroom and we're going to apply what you've learned. In essence, do your homework in the classroom. Um, and that is a much richer way of learning. I mean, it's it's been proven over and over, our ability to learn just um, by listening is fairly limited. And frankly, the longer that we have to listen to anybody, uh, the less we learn. But the more that we can interact with each other, that we teach each other, uh, the more that that material sticks. So while maybe we had some issues and being able to do it i, I liken it to if, you, if you've watched the uh, late night talk shows um when jimmy fallon or jimmy kimmel give their uh monologues i mean they just fall flat right like it's so you're like oh this is awkward well i can't tell you how many of those days i had um where i'm giving a lecture and there's just no reaction on the other side because people didn't really know how to interact but slowly but surely, we started to figure out interaction. Um, we started to figure out the power of the chat function um, and creating different ways for people to interact with their professor in real time. And 
the desire to 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 improve upon that is really i think is is been is has been taken up as a mantle by all the faculty here at cox we're bringing students back to campus in the fall but it is been already publicly announced that it'll be in a hybrid format, much like almost every other university in the country, where you will have social distancing in the classroom. And that means fewer people in the classroom, but it also means that some students will be online for certain class sessions. And then those same students will be in the classroom for other class sessions. So you kind of think of a red team, blue team flipping in and out of the classroom. Um, it has its challenges. Uh, primarily, the, the, we, we figured out so much of the technology visually, but the audio technology is probably the most difficult. Um, and really, and, and that comes into interaction. Uh, if you've probably heard when somebody doesn't have their mic muted on, on a Zoom call and all of a sudden you get this massive feedback, well, multiply that by you know 50 students in class. It's... It's been creating some issues, but um, our IT team has been really great and not only thinking about the technology, but thinking about it from a pedagogical standpoint and and helping us really rethink how we teach. Um, so I got to say, I'm excited. Uh, I've, I've, I'm, 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 I've been reinvigorated about what education can be. And I think that the what the things that we are doing in terms of creating asynchronous material and flipping the classroom are things that are going to continue on post COVID, and in fact will enrich the learning experience. So I, I um, I'm very bullish about the future of education. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Um, yeah, to your comment on IT pitfalls, I always joke, you know, it wouldn't be a Zoom call without a technical error, but <laughs> Um, yeah, it seemed like a huge opportunity for online learning. I, I saw Coursera was up 300% enrollments. LinkedIn Learning did 1.7 million hours in the month of April alone. Udemy was up enrollment 425%. So certainly a lot of momentum. And, and you reference excitement about the future of education. How do you see this first wave of online push to a, what's the term you use? Asynchronous. 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 So you think about it, I can, we can, right now we are synchronous. We are talking to each other live. If I, much of the material that you just described, like Coursera, LinkedIn, on general online content is, is asynchronous. Like I can watch a masterclass video. I can go take a Coursera course, right? I'm learning in an asynchronous manner. Now, that's only one form of learning. And what I'm saying is it's flipping the classroom. I've got to learn how to create a synchronous environment. Now, the challenge is, is if we were all in the classroom, right? Well, we can do a case study. We can have a discussion. We can work out problems together. Um, there's all kinds of formats. But when half of the people are sitting in front of their computer and half of the people are in the classroom, it's actually really challenging. It'd actually be easier if they were all online. And Zoom has has enabled that to have really effective communication. I mean, it's amazing. We've talked about video conferencing for years overnight. Like the technology so changed everything. Um, So getting back to your question, I I think that 
the so many people just went to an asynchronous world, right? Like it is that I'm just going to push content and everybody's pushing content. I mean, there's so much discussion happening, reflection happening, people talking, information gathering out there, but there's very little discussion. And that's the next step. That's what we're trying to get to is how do we facilitate discussion? Um, you know, the Socratic method. Like how do we we do that in a new way um, and just get away from what we've been doing for, you know, forever. It's just giving you a lecture, expecting you to take notes uh, and then having you learn it on your own. Right. Well, it's create an environment where um, I like to say where professors could be less lecturers and more facilitators. That's incredibly exciting. You know, you mentioned the hybrid and the red team, blue team. Facilities are often cited as a driver for education costs. With this hybrid method, how do you see that impacting the cost of education? Well, technology costs are um, are already impacting uh, all of us. Um, just how we outfit older spaces and the Cox School in particularly. In particular, is um, let's call it. It is a little bit of a data facility. Um, you know, it's no secret that there is actually there are plans underway um, in the relatively near future to uh, start a campaign to build a new Cox School. Um, and it's been interesting because that those discussions have had to evolve through what we've been dealing with. Um, and and it, it has definitely affected how we think about teaching in the future or teach or space in the future. Um, but I'll tell you the biggest challenge is um, is the social distancing, right? I mean, and it, I think it affects um, all of us, whether we are in office buildings or retail shopping centers. You know, if I'm putting people together in a space, what does that really mean for them to be social distanced? And how can you do it in a way that it doesn't, um, that you don't lose interaction? So, I mean, we are, we're working through it. I think, you know, everyone is just having to be more flexible. And I think that's the biggest thing that I think that we've all learned during this period is that not professors, students, uh, people in the industry, we've all had to be highly adaptable. We have to be more comfortable with change in a faster way. Do you see any potential for facilities to be more important given the precautions around social distancing? You know, I think, um, you know, potential for, you know, only singles and dorms and then therefore a surge in construction for dormitories. Um, is that anything on the radar of the Costco or the academic community? So interestingly enough, um, I had uh, Chris Epp with Four Point Investment Sales Partners on a webinar for the Folsom Institute this week. Asked him that very question because you see a lot of universities um, have been master leasing off-campus housing because they they simply don't have the beds um, on campus to to allow for social distancing and frankly, you know, cutting, um, reducing uh, occupancy down to one person per bedroom. 
I'll be honest. So uh, I was on a town hall with the faculty yesterday, the entire SMU faculty. And there was a survey that went out to students and parents talking about the residential halls in the, in the uh, fall. And by and large, most students were comfortable with two people in a bedroom, which was surprising to us, right? Like, and, and because social distancing, I mean, the second they step into a hallway, the second that they step into a fraternity house, a sorority house, <laughs> uh, yeah, that all kind of goes out the window. Uh, what we have to do is just create environments where people can just be smart, wear, wear masks, uh, wash our hands. Um, but so to answer your question, and I, I think this will play in when we talk about other property types, I think there's almost a net net result, meaning that, uh, yes, you're going to see some change in facilities. But for every action, there's a reaction. And I think that space needs will not generally change overall. You talk about being adaptable. The Folsom Institute's mission is to help students build a solid foundation for success in a constantly evolving industry. What has been historically most important to, for students to leave your program with? And how is it going to need to change in the future as early as this summer or fall with students coming back to campus to new norms in real estate? Sure. So, I mean, we've been able to provide technical training um, in a much, actually, much more efficient way by going online. I've been able to connect students with speakers across the country more so in this past in the past few months than I have before because I can utilize Zoom. But look, real estate, its heart is a relationship-driven business. I mean, one of the reasons that students choose SMU is because of our connection to the industry in Dallas. The ability that they can, the ability that students have to use that business card that says student that will get them in any door here in Dallas, right? They can they can just call upon anyone. You know, look at me, all of us. I used to have breakfast, lunch, three, four, five times a week with people. I mean, I've been a, a serial networker for, for a long time. I went out for a cocktail last night for the first time in, what, three months? To meet someone, right? Like I've, I it's completely changed. And students, uh, we've had this discussion. How are they going to do an informational interview over Zoom? How do you like? It's it's yes, they can do it, but it is much more challenging. How do uh, how do you interview for a job over Zoom? Much more challenging. So we're having to teach students, you know, go back to the basics like, hey, you know that fan that's in the background in your room, you know, let's adjust your camera a little bit. Like, you know, hey, you shouldn't wear that striped shirt because that's all I'm staring at. You know, it's uh, I hate to be that we're, we get down to technical details, but we're trying to help students um, utilize that technology to the best of their ability. But I, I'm not going to lie. I, I think for all of us, networking has been the most challenging part of this time. We've got content, but like I said before, discussion 
is challenging. And, and that's where we're really trying to figure out ways that we can still facilitate networking for our students, that one-on-one -on -one interaction, those small, uh, those small interactions where students really do learn and students do get opportunities. Sure. So has there been any silver linings to the types of individuals, you know, one of your responsibilities to, to drive the outreach to the industry? Has there been uh, any silver linings with connecting students to the industry? Absolutely. Well, I, it's what I said earlier, it's geography has been minimized, meaning that um, while where you're sitting here in Dallas, I can grab anyone here in Dallas to come and participate in a class, a case study, an event here on campus, generally speaking, right? Like I've, I've, like I, I joke that I'm the, the kid in the real estate candy store here in Dallas. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's been, you know, SMU, our alumni base and parent base that is outside of Dallas that is in the industry is unbelievable. And, you know, it was challenging for me to tap into those those people, meaning how do I get them connected to campus? How do I connect students to them, right? Is it is that student, do I connect that student to that person in LA when they go home for Thanksgiving, you know, when they go home for the holidays? Now, the opportunity to, to have that person in LA, to have that person in Chicago, to have that person in New York participate with our program via Zoom, I mean, that's the real silver lining, is just connecting, um, like I said, our alums and parents that are not local with us. And, and, and it has created a greater touch points with a broader network. That's good to hear. I had experienced the same with some, like to your point, a massive increase in content created. It's like every turn time you turn around, you get a chance to see a CEO talking live on LinkedIn or uh, other webcasts. Um, how do you see the various real estate verticals and cities in general changing as a result of COVID-19? Are there any topics or trends that you're most interested in or watching closely? Well, I think... It will be interesting to see what sticks coming out of this, meaning what are people's attitudes going to be towards, let's just start with retail, right? We were already over retailed as a nation. If you look at the retail square feet, square footage per person uh, per capita here in the U.S. relative to other countries around the world, we have dramatically more retail. So we already had too much square footage. Um, obviously now we have more vacant square feet footage. Um, so what's gonna happen to that space? What's, what are they gonna be the opportunities for, for groups to think of new uses for empty retail space? Cause I, I do think, you know, anecdotally, uh, observationally, that the 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 shift towards online shopping, which already had a, a really high CAGR, right? Like you looked at the rate of growth in online and e-commerce, and it was it's it's dwarfed physical retail. It's still been a small share. Well, you listen to the numbers; it's it's those that that, that companion of growth rate has increased dramatically. So. 
Now that said, I, you know, I think once we get past all this, people will still want to enjoy um, place. I mean, places, right? I mean, since like uh, it's not going to diminish um, our desire to want to go to places like Bishop Arts, to to Legacy West, to Highland Park Village, to places that have a great sense of place, places where, you know, we socialize, we interact. Um, I, I think that retail is going to continue to thrive there. We're going to want to go out to eat. I think we're going to want to go back to the movies. We want, we're going to want to go back out to concerts. I don't think that that's going to, I, I don't think it's going to go away. It's temporarily muted, but you know, look, as soon as we get past this, I, I think that those types of things return, but I do think that retail starts to shift. Um, in terms of office buildings, right? That's where I kind of go back to your your comment about education and the, or do you think we're gonna increase space? Well, I think it's gonna be a net net with office users. I think, you know, everyone's talking about the number of people that are gonna be working remotely. Sure. I think, you know, those, that percentage of the workforce um, that desires to work remotely may stay constant, but equally, we still thrive on interaction. And I think that, I, I do think that people today like that water cooler talk, right? Like they, 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 we, we, we are more creative together. And so I do think that there are people who are going to want to come back to the office. I want to come back to the office, right? I want to get back on campus. And so if we need to um, social distance within the office, well, we're going to need more space to do that. So yes, people, you may have fewer people per floor because people are working remotely, but then you also have people that want to be in the office. So net, net, I don't really see a change. Um, let's see, in terms of hospitality, it's a matter of time, right? Uh, multifamily has been interesting in discussions that I've had with developers, asset managers, owners. And I think what it is going to do, it could reduce some operational expenses, meaning if you look at a leasing staff, uh, just anecdotally, because um, leasing, you know, when uh, property management teams have had to move towards a virtual leasing during this period. And in talking to one asset manager, they've found that that has been really successful, that millennials, are very comfortable using their phone as their guide. And so they've created uh, systems that have, been, have enabled uh, virtual tours, virtual leasing. So I think that you could actually reduce some of your operational expense. And maybe that happens in other property types as well by utilizing um, some online tools, uh, some inter you know, some interactive online tools. But you know, look, we all need a place to live. Uh, so I don't think things are going to change dramatically on a, on a net net basis. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw a Wall Street Journal article today that said in San Francisco, which is obviously a bit of an outlier market with density and uh, um, cost, but one bedrooms in San Francisco are down rental rates down 10% year over year. So when I think about it, you know, and you talk about you know, retail not generating the same amount of business, you know, do you see any scenario where we could have 
you know, an oversupply problem with some of these spaces going dark, you know, you know, trades happen. And, and in theory, you know, every trade for a while was getting thinner and thinner. Do you see real estate owners running into trouble with banks? It's a great question. So could we have an oversupply problem? <clears throat> the answer is yes. Um, but then the lack of development because of the lack of capital, particularly debt capital that wants to go into development right now, I think that um, the market will correct and stabilize, right? I mean, we all expect for the stock market to correct over time. Well, look, multifamily rents in San Francisco had to correct. I mean, when you looked at rents relative to incomes, they were so out of whack. Well, they have to correct. Now, there's a whole other you know, slew of issues going on in San Francisco in terms of rent controls and everything else, but um, in evictions. And so it's becoming a more challenging place for multifamily developers to do business. Um, so I do think that there is a market correction in terms of, of rental rates, but I also could see some supply, some excess supply that maybe we had in the system gets absorbed um, coming out of this. So again, I, I hate to kind of keep saying net net. I, I, I do think that things will return to equilibrium probably sooner than we think. I mean, you're already hearing it. Um, mall, if you, if you play the, uh, the rent drum roll, right. And you, when I have met this person out for drinks last night, they, they have a portfolio of uh, strip retail, right? And we were talking about, all right, what are your rent collections? Well, you know, in March, the rent collections were probably, uh, you know, 40% range. Uh, in May, uh, in June, they're back up at 70%, right? Like the, is, 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 as communities start opening up, people are going back. Now malls, right? Malls are lagging because people aren't going to the mall yet. But does that mean that malls are dead? I, I, I think A malls continue to be A malls. Yeah, the B and C malls, they were already struggling. So maybe all of this speeds up change. Now, the question will be is, like I said earlier, is how quickly can we uh, find adaptive, uh, how can we, we, we find new uses for this space? Uh, you know, that that's going to be the real question. It's definitely when you when you look at cities, I mean, from a property tax standpoint, uh, cities, it, it is going to be a very challenging budget season for cities. Right. We just values have corrected. Um, the property tax burden has only increased. I think, you know, your costs have increased. Uh, it, it is going to be really, really challenging um, from a property tax perspective. So I, I don't knock on wood. I, I think that cities will also have to be adaptive and creative in generating revenue to support social services. And, um, you know, maybe that has a, a good long-term benefit. I, you know, look, at the end of the day, if we create better cities, if we create more equitable cities, cities that are healthier economically, it, if, it benefits the value of everyone's real estate, right? You just create places where people want to be. Well, that 
creates demand, that creates rental rate growth, that creates value create that, that creates value growth, right? Like it's it, it, it's it's a pretty simple cycle. So yeah, we're seeing um, this weird momentary lapse of whatever you want to call it, uh, and I, I, I do think as we develop a vaccine, as we Frankly, as we get smarter as, as people, right? Like we're going to probably cross paths with another pandemic again, right? Like uh, this is this is this has shown the weaknesses in the system, uh, but we are getting smarter. We're getting more prepared. We know how to handle these things, so they're going to have less of an impact in the future. So we're going to be adaptable. Yeah, you talk about building better cities. I remember speaking about DFW in particular. One of the mayor candidates a couple of years ago. Um, saw him at a luncheon and he said, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth does a lot of things. Well, you know, we have a balanced industry mix, but the thing the cities do best is attract people and companies to move here. So I'm curious and interested to see how those trends continue going forward. Uh, I would agree with that statement. I mean, you know, look, Texas has been uh, the beneficiary of immigration in a big way. Um, Obviously, uh, the downturn in oil and gas prices, I don't care whether, you know, look, if, if you were to say that Dallas is not affected by the oil and gas industry, it is affected by the oil and gas industry. We're all affected by the, the downturn in oil and gas prices here in Texas. But at the same time, you know, we are the beneficiary of tech in Austin. We're the beneficiary of financial services here in Dallas. Uh, if I am a major financial services company and I have the opportunity to move my employees out of a dense environment in a high rent area and I can move them to Dallas and in, in a more uh, with where they can have a better cost of living and a, and a less dense lifestyle and that appeals to their employees. Well, guess what? I think Dallas is a winner. Uh, so. I do think that Dallas will actually continue to grow. Very good. No, we've covered a lot of good stuff today, Joseph. Uh, but before I let you go, any publications that you would recommend to listeners to keep up on the latest and greatest and most up-to-date real estate trends? Sure. Um, well, if you aren't reading uh, Howard Marks's memos from Oak Tree Capital, uh, I think that he... Uh, you're really missing out. I think he's he's been um, he has been a great voice and um, and has a great perspective on the overall economy uh, that goes just beyond investment management. So I highly recommend everyone reads his memos. Um, I think you know obviously there's some just there's some. There's some great books out there. Um, I just finished reading Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. Uh, it's very timely, um, and it is uh, I, I think it's a, it's Malcolm is is a he's a great writer and um, a great teacher. So I, I highly recommend that book. Uh, but there's just there is there's. It, maybe that's the nice part of not being able to really go anywhere this summer. There's so many good leadership books out there. There's so many, there's so much great fiction. There's so much great nonfiction. Uh, we've all gotten tired of maybe watching uh, Netflix. 
So maybe this is the summer of the book. We get back to reading some good yeah. books. I had to, I had the chance to see Malcolm Gladwell speak about the book uh, last fall, I believe it was at SMU. Oh, it was fantastic. pretty cool. Is, yeah. the, is the Folsom Institute putting out any publications uh, the listeners might be interested in? So we uh, absolutely, well, I will tell you, <laughs> we are adding to the content universe uh, every uh, two weeks. Uh, generally, we, we've been hosting a webinar um, with various people from around the country, ranging Willie Walker, CEO of Walker and Dunlop, to we've got Michael Levy, CEO of Crow Holdings, coming up. I've got Herb Weitzman coming up in two weeks. Uh, we, we've been able to uh, have a lot of people come and join us. And, you know, I kind of, you know, as much as maybe people uh, don't need to have yet another webinar, I love for people to join us for those conversations. I think they've been they've been a lot of fun. There's been a lot of good discussion as opposed to pontification. So uh, I don't know how to kind of share uh, the Folsom Institute's information, but if anyone is interested, uh, they can connect with us at real.smu.edu. And we'd love to add you to our list so that you can be aware of, of uh, those events. Very good. Yeah, we'll definitely be sure to include links to those uh, in the episode briefing. But again, Joseph, appreciate you coming on today to discuss the cross-section of education and real estate and some trends impacting the industry. Thanks again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. We'll have a new episode out next month. If you have any story suggestions or want more info on the show or myself, hit me up on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.